Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Book of Romans, we begin a four-part series on condemnation requiring the gospel from Romans chapters 1 through 3. Today you will hear from Dale South, the associate pastor of groups at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, as he teaches us that God's wrath is revealed when he allows us to experience the consequences of exchanging his truth for lies. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter one and join us as we continue to see that God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter that we're reading here today this would have not been Paul's letter to just uh, the unbelievers kind of at large here. We need to remember this is not his first exposure to people or the first exposure to Paul that they would have been getting because this was already an established church. He was actually writing to Christians here. And so this is a great message, I think, here for us today as we start to look at how the gospel really can be impacting our lives. And I want to begin with the theme that we have uh, for our whole study of Romans that we've been going through and will continue to go through throughout the year. And that is God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were going to amplify that out more, if like some of you have read the amplified version of the Bible, if we were going to do that, it would say something like the perfect uprightness of who God is and everything that he does is revealed and is put on display to ungodly and unrighteous human beings uh, in the good news of the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the resurrection, and the promised return to make all things right of Jesus the Messiah King in fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout the Bible. That's really what we're talking about here. And today you're going to hear about condemnation. And I just I don't want anyone to hear or maybe watching online later to think these guys just want to talk about condemnation. They've got this God of wrath and that's what they want to talk about. I want anything to do with that. Uh, there's a little spoiler alert. By the time we get to Romans 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what what Paul is doing here to this group of Roman Christians, some from a Gentile background, some from a Jewish background, is he's setting them up to see the profound, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And before we can see how great that news is, we have to see how great our problem was, or perhaps still is. And, And so there's where the condemnation comes in. The condemnation itself, is a beautiful part of the gospel as we see Jesus taking that condemnation upon himself. So there's some really deep theology here, uh, particularly in verses uh, 17 through 21 of Romans chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, we're going to just wade into the shallow end this morning before we look at how some of these profound theological truths manifest themselves in our everyday lives. So beginning in verse 17 um, here, for it in, in the, for in it, I'm going to start with 16 actually, go back to 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now, remember, this is an established church that Paul's writing to uh, in Rome. It's a church he had wanted to visit, but up to this point in time, he had not been able to ever make it there physically. And the, the church membership is made up of, of Jewish followers of Jesus who had accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah, but it was also made up of Gentiles who were coming out of a very pagan background. Uh, with, most of them would have had little or no awareness of the Old Testament scriptures. This letter is going to become a key foundational uh, document in the New Testament, but they didn't have any New Testament writings. So, so Paul was starting pretty much from a blank slate with these folks and, and wanted to just reiterate the beauty of the gospel. And as we looked in, in Romans 16, 1.16 there, this, the phrase starts off with this sort of a conjunction word for. Um, he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I'm just going to go back to our uh, kind of working definition of the gospel that we're using from um, theologian Michael Bird. Here it says, the gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah in fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. Now, so this for is a purpose word, and it, it carries the idea of because in most of these, uh, these verses we're gonna be looking at. But if you just look in your Bibles there, look how many times we see the word for that's beginning the phrases, okay? Um, Paul is building a, almost like a legal case here. It's a logical argument, almost as if there, he was in a courtroom and as, as you look in your Bibles and you see all that for slash because there, we, we see I've got them, I think, on a, another slide here just to help get us all in one place. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Remember, and you can say because in place of for. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed. And for, because the wrath of God is revealed. For because what can be known has been shown through creation. For because his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. And then he goes on to the next word there in verse 20. He says, so now, because of all these things, people are without excuse when it comes to recognizing that there is a God. Now, Greek scholars note uh, that this word we're talking about, righteousness of God, is in our theme, the righteousness of God for the unrighteousness of, of, of us. 
uh, can also be understood as not just righteousness of God, that he is perfectly righteous, his righteousness, but it's the idea of righteousness from God. Now, both of those are going to be true in the gospel. God is absolutely perfectly righteous in who he is and everything that he does. But in the gospel, there is righteousness to us that comes from God. That's also this righteousness of God. And a lot of that's what Romans is talking about here. So righteousness, if we were to take that theme and amplify it out now, we would say the righteousness from God for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the, the impact of this good news won't make much sense if, if we don't understand how unrighteous we are, how our righteousness is insufficient, how we absolutely desperately need a savior. We need a righteousness that is given to us from God, who is perfectly right in who he is and what he does, because our own righteousness will only lead to condemnation from this righteous God. Now, where is 117 says God's righteousness is being revealed, talks of God's righteousness being revealed. Let's see what 118 talks about being revealed. 118 says God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and uh, unrighteousness of men. Now, this, this wrath of God, God's wrath is perfectly, it's this perfectly right response to ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness deals with uh, human, a human response to God, this vertical relationship that we have with God that has been broken or corrupted by sin. And then we move to this other word, unrighteousness. Now we're talking more on the horizontal level, and this is the response to other human beings where we have injustice, where we have broken relationships, infidelities. And when you put these two words together, ungodliness and unrighteousness, one talking about the vertical relationship with God, the other talking about our horizontal relationships with one another, then, then we are seeing Paul point back to what you and I know is the greatest commandments, which is the foundation, Jesus said, of the whole law and, and the prophets, right? And that is that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that vertical relationship, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus ups the ante on the last night of his life. He doesn't even just say, you're to love your neighbors as you love yourself. He says, you're to love your neighbors as I have loved you. Okay, that, that's even better than I love myself. That, that's a bigger, bigger lift. So we, we can't miss Paul's clear connection here between God's righteousness in verse 17 and God's wrath in verse 18. God's righteousness is revealed through the good news of the gospel in one man, and that is Jesus the Christ. The gospel is really boils down to Jesus. It's not just a, an announcement, it's a person. God's wrath, however, in contrast to the gospel, it's revealed through one person, Jesus. God's wrath is revealed in all the ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of all people. Now, Robert Mounts, a New Testament theologian, says God's wrath mentioned in Romans 1 is not an active outpouring of divine displeasure, 
but it's the removal of restraint that allows sinners to reap the just fruits of their rebellion. Now, the Bible talks about a terrible day of the Lord. It talks about a day of great judgment where God will pour out an active outpouring of divine displeasure on all that is evil and, and all that has, has rebelled against him. That day is yet to come. That day is when Christ returns, not as the savior of the world, but as the judge of the world, the righteous ruler coming with a sword. And today though, the wrath of God that we see is not this active outpouring, it's pretty much just a withdrawal of his restraint so that people start to actually have the consequences of the rebellion against him. So if you wanna follow another God, well then this is what your God is going to give you. And I'm gonna withdraw my protection from you, which in essence is his righteous indignation or his righteous wrath. So the big idea this morning, if we can take this away with us, God's wrath is revealed when he allows humans to experience the consequences of exchanging his truth for lies. And we're going to see that in our own lives. We're going to see that in our country. We're going to see that in our world, that when we exchange the truth of God for lies, wrath is revealed as we experience the consequences of our choices. See, it's almost, in Paul's logical argument here, it's almost as if he anticipated his readers would say, yeah, but how can you have wrath or how can God have wrath toward people who don't know any better, who, who don't really know about him? And it's interesting to see that Paul does not blame ignorance for the ungodliness and unrighteousness that arouses God's wrath. Paul says God's wrath is incited because people suppress the truth. You see in verse 118 of Romans, because people suppress the truth. Now, have you ever tried to submerge a kickboard in a swimming pool? Okay, you, you, there's a lot of resistance there. And as, as you try to pull that down or push that down, you may be able to actually get it all the way under the water. But as soon as you let go from suppressing it, it pops up out of the water and then starts to float on the water again. That is ultimately the way it is with God's truth. We can try to submerge it, but the, when, when we can no longer submerge it, it is gonna pop up and it, it, it's gonna show itself to be true. And that is what happens when the wrath of God is displayed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul, Paul explains, that God reveals his wrath to those who suppress the truth. And he says it's because they really know better. He said they really do know better. In, in verse 20 of chapter one, Paul goes all the way back to the beginning when God initially created the earth and the universe. And he argues that there is enough evidence in creation that a person can deduce that there is a creator who made what was made. This creator has evidently a lot of power and he's an old creator, he's eternal and he has a divine nature. He, he, he is more powerful than human beings. He has to be a God. And seeing evidence for God in creation like that is something that theologians we call natural revelation. 
Natural revelation is when through nature, God reveals himself in creation and we see about his divine power and we see his, about his divine, his divine uh, nature. So Paul is saying just through creation itself, there's enough evidence out there that people can look around and they say, this did not get here by accident. There, there is a power at play here. That, that would be the natural thing. And if you don't believe that, according to Paul, you are then suppressing the truth because you're looking for a different outcome than the one that you have. So natural revelation is evidence that there is this powerful creator God, and, but natural revelation is not enough to bring us back into a right relationship with that all-powerful God. For that, we need something called special revelation. And special revelation is like spirit-inspired scriptures. It's like the incarnation of Jesus the Christ coming among us. It's the miracles that God performs. It's things out of the ordinary where he gives you a much more detailed understanding of his redemptive plan and how you can actually be restored and brought into a right relationship with him. There's a quote here by Tim Keller that I, I thought was maybe helpful. It's helpful to me. He said, in the beauty of the world, that's the natural revelation, right? We are to see God's existence. So we know that there is a God. We just don't know if he's personal. We don't know if he's loving. We don't know if he's nasty. We don't know anything about him except that he's powerful and he's got a great creation. But in the brokenness of the world, that would be kind of this condemnation and the wrath of seeing sin have its rightful consequences, we're able to see God's justice. And as we do, because that justice is scary for an unjust people, for somebody like me, that righteousness that is perfectly righteous in, in all that he is and all that he says and all that he does is quite frightening to a guy who is not righteous like that. So as we do, we run back to the place where we see God's mercy, and that is the cross. So this whole talk of the wrath of God, the condemnation of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness is going to lead us to a much more profound appreciation of the gospel. So what, what, what does Paul say happens then when people suppress the truth that they have about God? If we, whether that's natural revelation, whether that's spirit, special revelation through scripture, uh, what, what happens? In verses 21 to 32, he, he kind of paints this verbal picture of, of what suppressing the truth looks like. In verses 21 to 23, you notice that he deals with ungodliness. That's that vertical relationship between us and God. In verses 24 to 32, we're going to see that he deals with unrighteousness. That's those horizontal relationships. Let's look at Romans 121 for just a minute. Paul says in Romans 121, I'm going to go ahead and read it, get my glasses back on here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says, we, we don't give honor to God and we don't give credit for his creation because if there is a God that is that big, if there is a God who is that powerful, then he would have a claim on our lives that would infringe upon our own free will and autonomy. And we would need to worship that being as God and we would need to give thanks to him 
for what he has given. Now, so that, why do we suppress the truth? Why would we suppress that truth? So we, suppressing the truth is to, because we, we don't like the idea that we are absolutely dependent on this all-powerful creator God. It leads us to believe then, well, if I can suppress that truth, then maybe I can live as I want to live independently from him. So instead of realizing that we were created and exist for God's purposes, we often end up creating and inventing gods that would exist for our purposes. You know, if, you, if you don't have a God that you can disagree with, if he's not big enough to disagree with you, he's a very small God. But we tend to want to have a God that will agree with what we already have come to believe. So Paul moves from the idea of ungodliness in the vertical to unrighteousness in the horizontal, beginning with verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, because the people were worshiping what was created rather than the creator, he says, therefore, because of that, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. I want to unpack some of these words here. This word gave them up has the idea of handing someone over, of turning someone in. Uh, like it's, it's a word that's used for you hand someone over for arrest. It's used when Jesus was turned over to the soldiers. Same Greek word. When Jesus was turned over to Pilate, when Jesus was turned over to the high priest. These words here are, he was turned over, turned over, turned over. And so God turns us over to the, the, our hearts of impurity. And these words, lust, that is translated there is this idea of a very strong impulse or desire, an unhealthy or an uncontrolled appetite. And then when he says this word impurity there, that word impurity is, is really meaning sexual sins. Um, of any kind, any kind of sexual sin. Now, we remember that, that God's wrath in this passage is giving people who reject him over to what they think that they want, what they think they want after they suppress the truth about who he is and what he has said. So because they suppress the truth and because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, because they worship the creation rather than the creator, God turned them over to their unhealthy, uncontrolled appetites for sexual sins. Those sexual sins were, were not limited to, but they did include exchanging what Paul referred to as natural relations with unnatural relations. He talks about women having unnatural relationships with women and men having unnatural relationships with, with men. So men made the same exchange of the natural for the unnatural as Paul speaks about with the women. Let me go ahead and read those verses. Beginning in 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, as we look, look at these scriptures here, Paul, Paul reiterates that their actions were the result of not acknowledging God's power and authority in their lives, of suppressing the truth. Therefore, it says, he turned them over to do what they wanted more than they wanted him. Now, this is talking about sexual sins, whether heterosexual or homosexual, in this whole thing of impurity that started off. It started off with any sexual sin, whether, whether that's adultery, whether that's fornication, whether that's pornography, whether that's lust. And then he goes on to talk about the same-sex sins. But for anyone who is struggling or has a struggle with any one of those areas, you know, Hunter and I would be more than happy to, to sit down and just hear your story and your struggle and walk alongside you, pray with you, pray for you, and try to help you find any resources that we can through the gospel to, to help you find freedom from those uncontrollable appetites that God wants you to be freed from. Now, in verses 29 to 31, Paul goes on to describe what the debased minds of those who suppress God's truth produce. And you're going to see here that it's much more than just sexual sins. He's not just hitting on a certain group of people to say these people are ungodly, these people are unrighteous. Beginning with verse 29, they were, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Okay. So as we, we see this list, it, it points to really the, the complete depravity that comes from suppressing the truth and embracing lies. We, we see it has an impact on the economic sphere. We see it have an impact on the social sphere, on the family sphere. It's relational breakdowns all over the place. And, and this is where theologians come up with what we call the total depravity of mankind, the doctrine of the total depravity of man. And again, that does not mean that we're as evil in everything as we can be, but it means that we're not as good in anything as we were created to be. Every sphere of life has been contaminated. Every relationship has been corrupted by suppressing the truth of God and exchanging it for a lie. And often that lie is, I don't think I deserve to have to do that. That is not the way I want it to be. So I'm going to live to get what I want rather than what God tells me to do. In our contemporary society, we, we could say that God's righteousness is revealed in the good news of Jesus and God's wrath is revealed against those who create 
and proclaim fake news. Now, when I say fake news, if your mind went immediately to wishing that God would show his wrath to certain media outlets <laughs> and certain politicians that you may think promote fake news, you're missing the point of these verses. See, because we're going to see repeatedly in the first three chapters of Romans that, that every single one of us is guilty of believing fake news or even guilty of creating fake news. We're guilty of disseminating and proclaiming fake news about God. No exceptions. We all deserve the wrath of a creator God who is righteous in giving it to us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul's talking about here in this chapter about the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about the Jews. He's going to say, you Jews might think you have an inside shot here, or that maybe you didn't need salvation quite as much as these Gentile folks did. But you see, there's no one can say, I don't need Jesus as much as those people need Jesus, whoever those people may happen to be. So let's note the progression here that Paul describes of what happens when we exchange the truth for lies, looking again at those phrases that had begun with a four usually. Um, let's see if I can get this to go forward. What's it saying on our gut? Some announcement popped up for you, Hunter. Uh, remind me tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> See if I can get that. To, can you, there we go. Now maybe we're back on business here. Wanted to update you. Um, so we've already hit that. Here's the progression of exchanging truth for lies. We see suppressed truth leads to corrupted minds and darkened hearts. With corrupted thinking and corrupted affections, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. When we exchange the truth of God for lies, God turns us over to our own desires. And when left to our own desires, we exchange the natural for the unnatural. When we exchange all those things for God's truth, we end up in, in, in bad places. Let's look at Romans 1.32, and I'm going to tie it back into that expansive list of sins that occur when we suppress the truth. In 32, he says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want to share something from my heart here about what I think are two of the greatest challenges the Church of Jesus faces today, um, particularly when it comes to reaching and retaining the, the upcoming generations of like my grandkids and their kids, um, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. and is we, we look at the dominant culture, the views of the dominant culture on sexuality and gender are very much at odds 
with what historical Christianity has taught as being God's truth. There, there's definitely a suppression of the message of God's truth, almost a repression that if you proclaim a biblical stance about sexuality and gender, then sometimes you're going to be liable to, to accusations that you're a hater or that you're a homophobe or, or that you're uh, in, in some way being very unkind and un, unloving. So a significant number of professing Christians today affirm same-sex relations, same-sex, same-gender sex as equally acceptable to God as heterosexual marriage is. And, and that camp largely does some hermeneutical or interpretive things that I believe are out of the realm of normalcy. Um, but but they, they come to the conclusion that when the Bible speaks against homosexual relationships, it's speaking against pederasty. That's when you have an older man basically forcing himself on a younger boy. Or they believe that it's talking about like Beckwith, uh, Lot and his daughters and the angels there, where it would have been an issue of gang rape of coming along. So I say, of course, God prohibits those things in Scripture. But Scripture does not necessarily prohibit a monogamous, caring, loving relationship between two people of the same sex. So you'll even see some churches that will have a sign out and they'll say, or on their website, they'll say, we are an affirming church. That, that means that they affirm that homosexual relationships are equally acceptable to God as heterosexual relationships. Now, some argue that exchanging the natural for the unnatural in Romans chapter 1 is actually speaking to being true to what feels natural for you. So if, if I feel like this is my preference or this is how I was wired, then it would be unnatural for me to go against that. Okay, and that's an exegetical, hermeneutical position that I cannot uh, find to be filled with logic. But history does indicate that there were stable, loving, same-sex marriages throughout the Roman Empire during the New Testament times. Paul, the apostle, would certainly have been aware of these in his learned environment and all of his travels. We know that the emperor Nero um, had a young man named Sporus castrated, and then the emperor married this young man. And so there was there were same-sex marriage throughout the Roman Empire in that time. At least it was known. Maybe not how widely, but it was, it was definitely there. And, and yet, with all of that reality in the context, the Apostle Paul still wrote Romans 1. And he said, you know, this is giving up the natural for the unnatural. This is doing things that are degrading from God's original intent of what he had in the created order. So the Apostle Paul wrote, we'll recall from our map, he wrote the letter to Romans from Corinth. And Corinth was known so much for sexual sin. They, they, they just think anything goes in Corinth. It was just kind of like the Las Vegas of the time. And in fact, they even had, a, they made Corinth into a verb to Corinthianize. 
And to Corinthian eyes, it was to be doing these sexual perversion kind of things that were happening in Corinth with the idol worship and the temple prostitutes and all that would have been associated there. But, but Paul in Romans, this is what I want to get to, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 of Romans. It's just a little bit of a parallel text here. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But this, look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Okay. There were people in the Corinthian church that had come out of this background and they had been brought into a right relationship with God through Jesus. And he says, as a result of that, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So for, for followers of Jesus who believe the Bible does not affirm uh, same-gender sex, to, to, to even hold that position makes us liable to charges of being haters and homophobic, even if neither of those charges is true. But the prevailing culture has framed the argument in such a way that there must be approval of that lifestyle or you're going to be labeled as those haters and homophobes. The, the prevailing culture wants approval and as Bible-believing Christians with the way that we have interpreted Bible is historically since the earliest parts of the church fathers here, we don't believe we can give that approval. So we, we must not compromise our convictions about God's truth. We don't want to suppress the truth as we understand it just to be able to fit in or to be more winsome to the culture. However, We've done a very lousy job of, of being compassionate and loving to people who have particular sins that may not be on our list of the, the most struggles we have. And, and we certainly are not loving people the way that Jesus has taught us to love them. And we need to repent. And we need to do a much better job of representing Jesus in those relationships so that there's no way for a charge to be called of a hater. Now, as we do that, we need to make sure as we don't compromise our convictions, we must not place homosexual sin in a category that makes it more heinous than any other sexual sin or lust that you and I commit. Nor, nor do we have the right to place any of these other sins in that long list in a category which somehow makes them less serious than a sexual sin. See, in, in recent years, I, I've seen professing followers of Jesus on both ends of the political spectrum and the two-party system and all the other parties. I, I've seen professing Christians uh, increasingly approve of and defend politicians 
who are filled with strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossip and slander and boastfulness and haughtiness and ruthlessness. And we seem to say that is okay as long as they're giving us the results that we're looking for. If those of us who call Jesus king are willing to suppress God's truth to achieve earthly political goals, then it's obvious those goals have become our God. That we are looking to that for our security, for our identity, for our prosperity, more than we're looking to the creator who gives us his truth through the scriptures. And if that happens, we will have little or no effectiveness for the gospel. We will absolutely deserve the wrath of God coming upon us for the consequences of our idolatry. And worse yet, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will have to look someplace else to see the gospel revealed and put on display because they won't be seeing it in us. So the big idea, God's wrath reveals God's wrath is revealed when he allows humans to experience the consequences of exchanging his truth for lies. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel and we don't need to be ashamed of God's wrath, but we do need to proclaim that good news and that God gives his righteousness for our unrighteousness as he poured out his wrath upon his son on the cross. It would be unrighteous and unloving for him to not be angry about the things that lead his image bearers and his creation down the path of destruction. So receiving the gospel removes our fear of God's wrath because in our ungodliness and in our unrighteousness, we have received righteousness from God through Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again for our next installment in our study of the Book of Romans. Until then, know that you have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless and have a great week.